Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. All right, welcome everybody. It's back to the J3 University Podcast. With me, as always, is co-host Luke Miller. Luke, how are you doing today, buddy? Good, man. Excited for this topic and guest, for sure. Yes. So with us also is Mike Isratel, PhD in sport physiology, uh, chief content officer for Renaissance Periodization, and a professor of exercise sports science at Lehman College, and also recent uh, publication author for Hypertrophy, the book, the book, right? That's an exciting one. Come out. It was super exciting. I'm super, super happy it went out. And um like honestly, so when we published the strength book, because we had uh, a while ago, we published scientific principles of strength training. We got a ton of questions before the book. And then after the questions got cut by a huge fraction because people just read the book. And I'm legit seeing the same thing with the hypertrophy book, especially like the super advanced questions. Because a lot of people like think at a very nuanced level. And they're like, well, you said in this one post here, you said in this YouTube video here, how does that square? And I'm like, fuck, I just can't wait until the book comes out so we can have this integrated place where everything's sort of unified. And then a lot of people have read the book and there's just, just not that many questions, which is really kind of cool. You know, it would suck if you wrote a book and it just like asked more questions than an answer. It's like, you know, maybe you're not doing a whole service to actually getting people a ton of knowledge then. So I'm very happy about it so far. I think that's just a way to continue making your product even better, especially you, you have Renaissance periodization, you're educating people on, on this and you see all these questions come up. It's like, well, what's a great product or education product to come up with? And it's one that solves a problem how do I answer all these questions and stop repeating myself? And that's the same thing like with this J3 university education platform I'm coming out with. It's like, I keep getting all these questions and no one gets it. How can I educate people better? It's like, Oh, here, here we go. And so if you're actually seeing that problem solved, it's super rewarding. Like that's exactly what you wanted. So, yeah, I've been following your like Instagram posts about like previews from the, the J3 university and stuff. And it's just wonderful. Like I like all of them, of course, hit the like button, but like, it's just, it's awesome. Like uh, one of the um, short little snippets you talked about with like growth hormone timing and stuff like that. I was like, Oh my God, thank the Lord. Cause there's folks out there shooting growth in the middle of the day and shit like that. And I'm like, ah, is, really, is, that, that, is that the best idea of when to shoot growth? And it, there's of course a lot of controversy, but it was just great to see something like super demystified and just being like, this is how it is. Here's studies to back it up. And Prost, I'm an IFB pro. And a lot of people just have to read that and be like, oh, okay, this actually makes sense. And I want to take this and hopefully do better in my own plan than I would otherwise. Because, you know, the, the way people really learn to use supplements is by going on getbig.com forum and just yep. scouring everything. That's real knowledge. You know, J3 University is fine and all, but the forums <laughs> are still king. Yeah, that's, that's just, uh, there's so much misconception out there about enhanced bodybuilding, especially. There's a lack of just quality information. And there's a few guys that do it really well, but they're just not known or they're never going to be looked at because they're not in that like IFBB like you know top tier level and people who's like oh his biceps are big so I'm going to listen to that guy um, when they don't have a logical thought stream or where do you even get this information from it's like well I don't know <laughs> sure. I heard it from the other big guy with biceps exactly. like, oh, all right so um, yeah so trying to sort of bring it all all around be a comprehensive uh, how to bodybuild basically for yeah, naturals as well. So I won't hold back any there, but a lot of those topics cross over, and uh, but also like taking some the, the pharmacological side and trying to have a logical thought process of how we framework right. things. But priceless, keep it up. 
But uh, getting on to the topic of the day is our refeed series. And it's just, just that, having a, a logical thought process of working our ways through using refeeds. And refeeds have kind of been the hotter topic just lately because of some of the papers that have come out with Bill Campbell's study and then Jackson Piel's group, like kind of reviewing this paper and saying, oh, this might not be quite as much as what we're seeing out of it. Um, so I wanted to dive into refeeds, diet breaks, and their applications, primarily in contest prep mics. So just to have that context there. Um, so this won't be necessarily for just the, the, the casual dieter, the, the general fitness crowd. I want to keep it in context of that population. So with, with that being said, uh, and then I know we have some definitions kind of in the research world of somewhat forming of refeeds and diet breaks, but if you could take us through like on, in your words, how do you define like a refeed and a diet break and how do you utilize those, those terms? Yeah, I think the simplest conceptual term to apply is like you have an average calorie level for the diet total. So you just take like 16 weeks of contest prep and yeah, there might be some ups and downs, but you just get an average caloric load. And I would define a refeed slash diet break or anything else as uh, a day or meal or number of days that exceed, purposefully exceed that average. Like, cause someone could always say like, how many calories do you eat? You know, like, I just imagine like what insults would say on an Instagram post, you know, my last Instagram post would be like, yeah, my average calories are 2750 for this uh, contest prep. And then I post, you know, a day of eating a day later and it's 3,500. But again, they would say like, well, so like, why are you eating more, right? And so that episode of eating more, however long it lasts, is in my mind, some kind of a refeed. Hopefully it's occurring logically, not just like, oh shit, I miscounted. <laughs> or like, oh, my wife was in town and she's on a business trip before, so we just said bucket. Like that's not, you know, they could say that's a refeed, but I think when people mean refeed, they mean something purposeful. So for me, it's just that. And then we can talk about later, I'm sure the magnitude of, of that refeed, the duration of that refeed, and also the composition of that refeed. Like, are you going eating a bunch of cookies or are you just eating more white, uh, white rice or something? So to me, it's just more calories than your average dieting uh, uh contest prep and then after that we ask a bunch of more complicated questions yeah and so and that kind of like lays the framework of where, where it's at with re refeeds is like this this slight kick up in calories above what your dieting level would be some people are, are bringing this to a maintenance calorie level some people this might be a slight surplus some people are in, in an application setting they're going way beyond like a maintenance level and i don't know they're probably not getting in contest shape potentially um, or they're using this as maybe a trial run for their carb up during a peak week. And maybe that does exceed what this maintenance level is. So there's several applications that we're seeing, at least in what has come about in the, the literature with refeeds is that it seems like coming up to like a close to a maintenance level is kind of that how that's been defined. And so regarding literature, before we dive into it, because we will get into just application, what we see out coaching people. Um, where, where do you view the literature as far as the application and refeeds? Like, where do you see that we currently stand? Is, is it, is it solid? Is there anything that like, hell yes, this aspect really works for us? Or is it like, you know, missing some links or some stuff that has been disproved? Uh, where, where do you see it as far as that goes? Yeah, the great question. So I think the number one thing that the research so far in its totality has disproven is there some kind of extra special magical effect, especially at metabolic rate after the refeed? Like during the refeed, your metabolism speeds up because there's more food, but it only buys you as much time as the refeed lasts. And as soon as the refeed's over very shortly thereafter, your metabolism goes back down and adjusts quite rapidly to whatever it is you're eating. So I think people before were sort of surmising that, you know, your metabolic rate falls sort of precipitously 
until you execute a refeed of X duration. And then after that refeed, it like buys you a ton of metabolic rate for weeks until you need another one. And I just think that's just not true. I mean, it would be fucking sweet if that was true. <laughs> um, but I just don't think that's the case. I think it does buy you something, which is a decreased level of diet fatigue. I'm, I'm sure we can talk about that later. Uh, but the number one thing I think the studies have refuted is there's not this like super potent effect that some people were hypothesizing, um, which is good because we know not to chase, you know, like we don't have to go on wild goose chases anymore about like, trust me, bro, 4,000 calories a day. It's going to have your fucking body burning fat like crazy. Like, I'm pretty sure the deficit does that, you know? Um, so, and especially, uh, it's okay to talk farm. I'm here, right? I, I yeah, yeah. So okay, okay like. sweet. Yeah, it's uh, very unusual for me in my most of our podcasts. <laughs> I think you see a lot of weird shit uh, from prep coaches that have an affinity towards like a, a fuckload of T3, a shitload of Tran and a bunch of orals where they're like, yeah, my client's just in his metabolism's really revved up. So we got to feed him 7,000 calories a day and he's just burning through it. I'm like, he's also going to die like tomorrow or something. Like, you know, like, yeah, he also doesn't sleep and sweats permanently and all this crazy shit. Like that's not the diet, you know what I mean? So there's a lot of mysticism about like, oh, it's the refeed. Like, is it though? So I think refeeds are, have been demystified in literature as not super powerful tools, but they do have their uses. Um, and I do consider the effects on body composition of refeeding as currently studied pretty close to equivocal. And if you want a good summary about this, you can reach out uh, to some of Meadow Henselman's writings and talks and podcasts about refeeds. He has an excellent debate, I think with Eric Helms um, on um, one of the podcasts, uh, I think an Australian podcast. And it was a really great back and forth debate. And at the end, Eric had to kind of withdraw some more uh, hardcore points. And uh, Meadow, of course, made uh, some conciliation as well. But at the end, it was like, you know, especially for not contest prep, just for getting lean, there is something to be said for like, let's fucking dig in, get this deficit going, get lean, compete, get out. Versus like, if you do, there is a way to abuse refeeds where if you think they have this huge, beautiful effect and are super altering, you tend to do them a lot. And in, in one of the clear downsides of that seems to be that you're at this really low body fat for a longer time. Is that really a good idea? And for prep, because you know, you're know you going to turn up the gear during prep, if you can get in shape in 12 weeks and use 12 weeks of gear, it's probably better in some cases than using a 20-week prep with tons of refeeds where you still use 20 weeks worth of hardcore gear. And like, yeah, you know, we're all into 28-week preps with trend at 1,000 the entire time. But, you know, there's like cool things to look after life after bodybuilding, maybe. I don't know. So, so it's one of those things where uh, I think that there are really good arguments for refeeds having small strategic effects, which I think are super important, especially in contest prep. But there is also, I think, a profound argument that the literature has raised when it didn't find incredible effects of refeeds that basically it's like, you know, you can do refeeds and, and strategically they may work really well, but it's probably not this like magic, really awesome thing that you just have to be doing. And if you don't do it, you're missing out on crazy stuff. Yeah, I think I've seen some of like the... The early on studies with overweight, obese individuals, we have some some good like you know review papers on these topics, looking at uh, intermittent diet restriction and just normal consistent diet restriction, and and showing kind of just they're they're about the same uh, across the board as far as like fat loss goes. Um, now there there would bring rise to the potential like how does that feel psychologically? You know, if say you have the same time points. And this diet just has the perception of being easier. Would there be a 
uh, an, an advantage to that. You have someone that's like enjoying the process more. And I've actually, I thought of your, one of your analogies that you gave on, on some show, I forget, it was, it was a prison analogy. So I mean, imagine you have several, but it's basically if you present like, hey, this 20 year prison sentence or 20 week prison sentence, I think of pr contest prep as like a prison sentence in a way. So 20 week prison sentence, you go to prison for six, six days, but one day you get out. But on those six days, you only get like an hour of rec time, right? And you have an hour of, uh, you know, solitude confinement. You, the other option is you go to prison seven days a week. And, but you get two hours of rec time, no solitary confinement. It's like, which one would you rather do? You're both going to get out in 20 weeks. One, you might get out and you feel like, hey, I'm not, I'm not in jail right now. This is awesome. I can dig in for six more days. Um, it's going to suck a little more because I have an hour of solid, you know, solitary confinement. Well, refeeds are kind of like the same premise here is like there might be this psychological advantage to dieting, which I, I know as, you know, being around like uh, exercise science, you dig into these markers of like body comp, muscle mass, does this matter? But we sometimes we might lose sight of the psychological aspect of it, which I think coaching individuals has a huge huge weight in because there's only a few people I know that like, Hey, I could tell, Hey, listen, the refeeds don't do anything for you. We're just going to run a strict deficit. You're going to die for 20 weeks. And everyone's like adherence is usually a, a huge issue um, because it's hard to stay on, on, you know, the, the restriction for that long without seeing some little light each week at the end of the tunnel. So um, what, what, are you, what are your views on like the, maybe the adherence aspect of using refeeds or versus maybe, the non-inherent aspect, because you just mentioned, you, know, you eat a little bit more food, and hell, that fucking shift tastes good. I want to eat some more, you know. And then you go binge. Yeah. So there's there could be a counter scale to that. So I think that that's a very good point. Um, that I think comes down to more how you do the refeed versus uh, do you do the refeed. Um, I think some people want to just get in and fucking get working. A lot of the people too in natural bodybuilding that look at the scale and it actually tells them stuff. Whereas most of the rest of us, not in natural bodybuilding, the scale is like, well, for you, John, you got to make the 212. So yeah, you still have to look at the scale, but also like it goes up and down a lot. You introduce a compound, take one out and all kinds of crazy shit happens. So like when you gain some weight on a refeed, you're not like, oh shit. <laughs> you're like, well, whatever. It's part of the, part of the course. But for a lot of natural folks, refeeds are an extra mind fuck because they're losing weight, losing weight, losing weight, losing weight. And then it goes up and they're like, fuck, fuck, fuck. And that psychologically could be just as sort of disruptive as the idea of just never getting a break. There's also a thing, um, I bring this up every now and again, this applies more to taking cheat meals. Um, if you're in a hardcore enough diet, for some people, not all, cheat meal introduction starts to essentially like be a, a weird, really downgraded replication of how intelligence agencies extract information out of people they're not torturing. So what they'll do is they'll like put you in a tiny box and play heavy metal music and not let you sleep and you shit yourself all the time. And they just fuck you up and bring you to a breaking point. But a lot of people, especially people trained to resist um, tradecraft, will, they don't really have a breaking point with a linear approach. They just don't, like they just get more hardcore, like fuck you, kill me, I'm never sharing my secrets. What you do with them is after they're close to the breaking point, you turn the metal music off. You let them out of the box. You give them a nice meal and you talk to them. Here's a cigarette. Relax. It's okay. Like, and, and you just treat them like a human being. Maybe you let them shit in the toilet. And then you just inform them after, like, listen, just tell us something, man. Like, we've been nice to you. And they're like, fuck you. And they're like, sweet. Start the whole thing over again. So they go back in the box. Everything sucks again. And over time, you still reintroduce the good stuff. 
And it's the looking forward to the good stuff. It's the psychological fantasy of, okay, this is going to be over at some point. How can I make this good? Because if the good stuff is never coming, if you're a spy and you get caught, you just know it's torture, 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 death. You're like, fuck you, forgotten country. I'm just fucking dying here. But if there's good stuff occasionally, it's easy for the human mind to focus on that and, and to start temptation and anxiety. And that makes you break or makes you psychologically more fragile, which is what intelligence is do to actually get information out of you. Cause at some point you're like, I'm never going back in the box. What do you guys want to know? Like I, this whole thing worked. I don't care. Please just give me more food and don't let me listen to heavy metal ever again. The thing is with dieting, especially with introduction of cheat meals, it's hard, 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 but you're looking forward to this cheat meal. And then you have this cheat meal and it's this beautiful experience. But then halfway through the cheat meal, you're like, Oh my God, this is like my last eight bites of cheeseburger. And then it's fucking hell again. And you start really worrying about it. You get really food attached. You're really anxious. Never mind the pharmacology already makes you fucking anxious. The whole thing. And after you eat, you're bloated. Your body weight is off. You maybe don't look as good the next day because of the excess salt. And you feel like total shit. And you're like, fuck, what the fuck am I doing? And then you're looking at your chicken breast and veggies the next day. You're like, God damn it. I want another fucking cheeseburger. It's like another uh, stupid analogy is like, you know, if you're trying to be celibate for like 40 days and 40 nights, whatever, fucking why the hell you'd ever do that shit is beyond me. Well, if you take enough Letro, that's the easiest thing in the world to do. Uh, but like, it, you know, if you're trying to be celibate, would you go flirt with people? Would you go watch porn, but then turn it off five minutes? No, why the fuck would you do that? It just tempts you more. It cracks you more. So a lot of people from that perspective, especially with cheat meals, maybe just better to just hit the fucking diet. And we all know that after a few weeks of hardcore dieting, you're kind of just bought in. You know, you're like, this sucks. I'm used to it. I don't give a shit anymore. A lot of times the hunger mechanisms are there, but the cravings mechanisms kind of really go away. And someone's like, do you want a cheeseburger? You're like, I honestly don't even fucking remember what that tastes like. You know, like I'm just so machine-like about my shit. It, it, it's like when the cheeseburger is gone, you get over it. It's like if an ex that you super loved breaks up with you. Yeah, for a while you're like, oh, I hope she comes back. But then it, like she marries another guy and you're like, she's never coming back. You start to get over her. And then months later, people are like, you still miss Stacy or whatever. And you're like, who the fuck is Stacy? No, I don't, right? <laughs> Right. So, so it's one of those uh, situations where I think if uh, refeeds are cheat meal based and super tasty food based and they occur in a very pulsatile manner, like just for one meal or just for one day, um, that can it present as many psychological problems as it can solutions for some people. For other people, they fucking really love it. They, they can hack the diet but they really just need a little cheat meal every now and again. They get their cheat meal. They're like, oh my God, this is amazing. And they're totally good to go. And it's no problem. And then they got another week in them. So I think that comes to a coach-client relationship of trying out sort of both strategies of hardcore versus cheat. And of course, there's an immediate strategies that I'm a bigger fan of, of raising clean food amounts and then lowering them again, which I'm sure we'll talk about later as what I think is the ultimate kind of probably best approach for most people. But in between those two extremes, you can find where clients fit. And it's, it's pretty obvious when clients are in that camp of cheat meals don't work for them because it'd be like, coach, when can I take my next cheat meal? You're like, okay, that was the wrong question to ever ask. Never, the answer is never, right? Or if they're like, oh, like I'm doing great. And then you're like, all right, like your weight loss is doing great. Do you want a cheat meal? And they're like, okay, sure. And they take a cheat meal like, oh, that was an amazing cheeseburger. And then the next day they're on their diet and they're like, I feel amazing after that cheat meal. Like, all right, sweet. So then, then that, pro that process can go on. So you typically, I guess you lean to more using like the cleaner foods then. For, for cheat meals. And I, I, I've seen the same thing with like, it just, it's very individual because I'll have some clients that, that just sends them off on this binge path. And you I even, I've read some research into like, even the, the specific type of food definitely has different 
impacts on like dopamine receptors and like even fructose versus glucose, um, it can have the same uh, satisfaction as far as mouthfeel and what people report, but actually not having the same insulin response has a different impact on the hypothalamus and insulin receptors in, in the brain, causing different responses to wanting to like seek out more food or hold back and get, get satty. Um, and then you see like in really obese individuals, usually the insulin resistance forms, you're not getting that same type of um, reduction in satiety that you normally get with, with insulin increases. So I think definitely being, you know, food uh, de dependent on that. And if you eat like those high palatable foods can just drive you to eat more. It's like, you know, engaging all these dopamine receptors, like shooting heroin. It's like you're a contest prep. You're like, Hey, once a week, I'm going to take a bunch of heroin. It's going to be fucking party and awesome. It's like, can you get back to your non-heroin life after that? It's like, sure. maybe not. I might have to just keep, yeah. keep blasting away on it. Then you have these people that, Oh, that was cheaper. It was great. And you know what? I'm going to sneak in just like a mini burger the next day. And they just yeah. can't, can't get get back to it. I'm in pretty good shape, you know. I can just gonna ease back into the diet. Shit like that starts. Yeah. But I think you brought up a great point too about the pharmacological side because we haven't really touched on that because it definitely convolutes what you're really seeing with your clients. And there's definitely like the introduction of pharma, like at, at the beginning of contest prep. It definitely has an a. It's not a great fat loss tool, but it absolutely has an effect on on metabolism and fat oxidation. And especially if you're adding other things into it, it has a very complementary and synergy effect. So sometimes you'll add that in and you just see people start recomping, right? They start increasing size. You start dropping body fat. Like, oh, sweet. I haven't even changed their diet. And then that, you know, from a person might be, or, or you have them have a refeed and it's like, oh man, I'm getting leaner and we're adding more food in. Man, my metabolism is really cranking up on these refeeds. Like, is, is it that the rationale? And so I think that's a, that's a point of part of why we dig into the research and have these conversations to try to pull out what is really working, what's not really working. And then we can have a better application because we, we know that rationale um, behind it. So you aren't big on using actual uh, cheat meals, but actually your application of clean foods, like you said. So how do you initially like set this up with when you're going to work with someone that's, do you, do you have a lot of contests? Prep athletes that you mainly do their training or the diets? Or? I don't even coach, man. I just I, I basically write computer programs and shoot YouTube videos for a living and write books. <laughs> so I haven't that. seen another human being in fucking months, man. All those videos of me and Jim's, they're, they're just CGI. They're fake. I don't even know who Jared is. That's a contract. Your fake weights. A fake. Well, oh, the weights, of course, fake. I don't lift weights. Um, but but uh, so, Say what? Yourself? Your, uh, for your past, your past prep? How you started and set it up? Or, or Jared's. I do. So I, Jared and I have conversations where sometimes he takes my input and sometimes my input is wrong. Uh, I do have one client for fun, uh, Charlie, uh, our gigantic Korean friend. And he, he's an ideal client because he's not really human. He's a machine. And he also is so Korean that the harder things get, the more he likes them. So I like, if I was like, do you need a refeed? He'd be like, no, but he'd say no until he was dead. And he would really enjoy dying from contest prep. So really the psychology there's a little, a little, uh, well, ideal for contest prep, but you know, quite curious and not applicable to most people. That being said, um, I did uh, implement what I'm about to describe in my last prep for myself. Okay. Um, I could have done a better job and I will in future preps and I'm implementing right now with Charlie, 
Jared implemented a version of this for his contest prep when he turned pro or whatever. And I think a lot of people actually do this, whether or not they formalize the process and call it something or not. And, and here it is. As you are dieting in a hypocaloric condition, you are accumulating all kinds of fatigue, and one of them is diet fatigue. And we can talk about what that really means, but there's a big psychological component and a physiological component. You're starting to run really low on muscle glycogen. You are starting to really low, run low on the energy it takes to lift weights and the ability to recover. And psychologically, you really start to hunger, hormones start to go up, water retention starts to go crazy, and you probably, your niche starts to go down, so your proclivity to just move around really starts to go to hell. Metabolism, we all know from studies, isn't as variable as we once thought, but it goes to the lower end of where it's supposed to be. And at that point, you know, that may happen over a period of, let's say, two weeks of like a really gnarly deficit, then you're pretty diet fatigued. What you can do then is because your show's not for another eight weeks, you can enter into a maintenance level of eating. So you uh, go start hypocaloric and enter into maintenance level of eating for several days. It can be done just as a feed forward mechanism of like, hey, coach says three days at maintenance or better, it can be done with an intelligent athlete's auto-regulation of we're going to take maintenance days until you feel like you're ready to plunge into the darkness again. And good athletes that want to win are honest about when they're good and when they're not. Like you guys know, like you have like a string of deficit days and at the end you like wake up and it's leg day. You're like, I'm going to die today. I can't fucking even get out of bed. Like why I, I, over the course of this last prep, I actually did uh, at least one cardio session to failure where I had to sit down because I couldn't walk anymore. Like I was so low on blood sugar. I was like, fuck, 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 fuck. I had to sit down until I pass out. And I'm like, okay, okay, I'm okay. Okay, fine. And I sat there for five minutes. Then I got up and walked uh, very, very pathetically the rest of the way. So it was outdoor walking, right? So I can't just get off the treadmill. I'm like somewhere else in Vegas and who knows where. Vegas is a weird town anyway. So in any case, if an athlete gets to that situation, you know, as a good coach, more or less several times a week or maybe every day, you sort of ping them and go, hey, how are you feeling? And there's going to be this decline, right? They're going to be like, I'm feeling great and then I'm feeling okay. And then I'm like burning on, just going on fumes. You introduce uh, a question mark number of days. I think that approach is best of maintenance. They get way more carbohydrate. Oh, by the way, the difference is made up almost exclusively in carbohydrate. That is That replenishes glycogen stores, creates a ton of training energy, helps them sleep, promotes recovery generally, all the good stuff. Luke, it looks like you want to say something. No, keep going. I'm going to ask after. Okay. <laughs> you have that like, either I'm going to say something or I'm about to sneeze face. I definitely want to dive in because you are the training guy. So I definitely want to dive in at some point and bring us back. So I speak on it now is, is low glycogen, uh, how that actually impacts training, because this is part of the argument. Of, of why refates, hey, you don't deplete a lot of glycogen during training. And then also in the contest setting, when you have someone that's low carbohydrate training, the volume's higher, and you're doing cardio and you're having these low blood sugar episodes. So yeah. continue, yep. but let's make sure we nail that. So that's something. For sure, for sure. So you get to the point where you're running on fumes, then you switch to maintenance, high carb, so on and so forth, and you do that for X number of days. And once the athlete communicates back to the coach, like, hey, coach, like, honestly, I'm fucking feeling good. As good as it gets on contest prep, I'm ready to burn the shit again. And you go right back into the deficit pre-planned. You already know what your deficit's gonna be and you do as many burn days as you can and the athlete can. And then you put them back up into a maintenance and 
Uh, I like to keep the values the same so that towards the end of contest prep, because body weight has fallen, maintenance at the beginning turns into a slight surplus at the end, which I think is actually really good. A tiny surplus can really promote the kind of recovery even maintenance can't. So this generally ends up folding out as like seven to 14 days of pushing and then two to four days of pulling back and going to maintenance or slight surplus. It's almost like, you know, like dipping into a really cold ice bath and then coming back up for air and dipping into a cold ice bath and coming back up for air. You can't stay down there forever, but after a couple of breaths out of the ice bath, your head isn't freezing to death again and you can dip back in. So it's, it's kind of, we do basically the same thing with training. Like we push it until we can't anymore and then we deload. This is basically like a diet deload. The thing is diet fatigue operates on slightly different time courses with training. I would love for them to be completely aligned, but often they're not. So you treat them as independent processes and you deload the client when they're no longer able to hit PRs. And then you deload quote unquote with diet when they can't stomach it anymore and they can't push forward or they start to lose a ton of performance, which is clearly diet related. Like their leg workout just goes straight to hell. And you're like, dude, why are you getting five less reps and everything? Like I can't feel my legs. And they're not sore. I just can't feel them because they're so fucking out of everything and they're deflated. And you're like, all right, all right, time to back up. And so last thing, uh, so I don't forget, you can modify this process on a, a few factors. One is the athlete's input. Like athletes are human and you can only push them so far. A, a baller athlete will be pushed as far as they can until physiological reality bumps up. But less baller athletes, they have a psychological buffer there where they physiologically could have made it 11 days. But after eight, they were like, nah, which is a, that's a reality you're dealing with with an athlete as a coach. And uh, you just have to bring them back up because otherwise it's just going to quit or some shit like that. And the last modifier is how close to condition of where you're supposed to be are you, right? Like if you're four weeks out, but everyone, including yourself, knows you look seven weeks out, like, yeah, ideally we'd pull you back every 11 days, but motherfucker, you're getting in for 14 days at a time. And then your refeed's going to be two days instead of four, which is like, we just have to go, right? But if you're starting to, and I'm sure you guys have had your own preps where, you're four weeks out and your striations have striations. And it, you're like, okay, I'm at weight already. I'm super fucking lean. If I'm just in a deficit for the next four weeks, I'll show up on stage like a fucking dried up prune and people be like, are you okay? Like, that's not a question you want to hear in the back, like the pump up room. Like, are you sick? Like, no, God damn it. I'm just really lean. They're like, right on. <laughs> so at that point, what you might do is do like, ooh, I don't know, four or five days of maintenance or slight surplus, and then two or three days of pushing it. And that balance through the week ends up getting you to a place where you stop losing muscle mass, maybe even recomp a little with some of the farm that's in at that point towards the end. Um, and also you have an ability to play with the higher carb levels and see how your body responds at what time scale so that when you peak, you already know what's going on. And then you're still losing fat, but at that total net rate that doesn't cause you to lose a ton of muscle. So that's kind of my view on the best way to use refeeds. And notice real quick, it's a multi-day process usually because diet fatigue takes a few days at least to bring down to where you can go again. And I think some people are so fixated on the one refeed meal or the one refeed day that they're, they're you know, would you guys deload for one day? Like, what the fuck does that even mean? How much systemic fatigue do you bring up by deloading one day? Like, oh, some, and there's some role for it, but barely any. I deload for a week, maybe half a week. Same idea with the diet breaks. I think they can be a little longer to where the athlete's like, fuck yeah. And when you look at their physique, you're like, wow, you're like pretty loaded up on glycogen. Let's fucking burn it off again. So one of the questions I would have to follow that up, because I think that that's a very accurate viewpoint is, the consideration for activity across refeeds, right? Because I think that one of the things we've had in past discussions is 
something that's missing in the literature a lot of times within refeed studies that I think should be considered is the activity component, right? So you can think of it as like an, a total energy availability when it comes to um, managing an athlete, right? And obviously it's very contextually dependent on where the athlete is. Like, like John says, if their legs are eight feet behind them when they're trying to walk, maybe a more of an activity adjustment is better than the food. But when you're doing these refeeds process, are there activity adjustments coinciding with this? Because that's kind of like where I'm at at the moment is that most of the time my refeeds with a lot of my guys are going to be a combination of the two of some sort push towards the side that, you know, contextually they're in that I think is going to be the most beneficial. That, I mean, man, uh, that's an absolutely great consideration. So currently I'm coaching Charlie. It's exactly what we're doing. Uh, I don't have the numbers offhand. They're all in email. So, so I don't uh, make a mistake. They're all written down, but it's something like, on the pushing days of where he's going hard, it's a calorie deficit, like from less food. I think he's at like 2750 calories or whatever on those days. And it's 12,000 steps daily. That's his cardio or something like that. On the easier days, it's like 3750 calories. So way more carbohydrate. It's something like only 8,000 steps a day. Um, now this can, like you said, be contextual if someone is just more active generally and you never even have to put in formal cardio, like let's say they are a bodybuilder, but they also work as a waiter and they walk 20,000 steps every day. Like you don't ever have to do cardio at that point. You just only manipulate the food and you can't tell them like, Hey, today do a shittier job waiting. <laughs> don't like, don't walk up to tables as often. Uh, there's just not an option for them. But for other folks, especially when they're doing plenty of excess cardio to get in shape, and they're the kind of people whose legs kind of pretty much suffer from cardio, then for them pulling back on that cardio is critical because especially for the legs, it lets the glycogen really refill. Because if you keep grinding cardio, the fucking glycogen goes right into the legs, gets burned off during cardio, and it's just like nothing happened. Of course, more food is better for them, but I think uh, 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 the best approach is absolutely in most cases, raising the food a little bit and dropping the activity a little bit. And then that really clears the air. It just reduces diet fatigue until you can go again. And then you reduce the diet fatigue and you go again. Same, same as stopping for gas at a gas station on a road trip. Yeah. And you, you know, I think that's, that's great. Again, I, I kind of noticed the same thing too. Like, you know, I, I brought up before, like I'll have someone that's like starving on their diet and they're super low food. Well, maybe it probably makes sense to end up their food versus someone that's doing you know, three hours of cardio or something. It's like, and they have enough food. And it's like, yeah, maybe we should reduce their cardio. So there's, there's a balance component there, but you spoke earlier on separating training fatigue and dieting fatigue and fatigue is talked about a lot fatigue 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 i feel like if you ask someone what's fatigue and you're like well i don't know i just have some and it's accumulated <laughs> they don't i don't know it's, it's hard to uh take that this this term now that's used so commonly and try to separate it out to like well what's truly is fatigue and what are you noticing on a diet fatigue versus this actual training fatigue because you because you're saying that they happen on different time scales yeah. So training fatigue is, so there's, there's one giant overlapping thing that both diet fatigue and training fatigue fit into, and it's just called systemic fatigue. And not only is it diet and training, it's also stress, like everything, a lack of sleep, everything feeds into systemic fatigue, but the places that feed in are, are to some extent interdependent, but also independent. So for example, if you're eating a shitload of food on a massing phase, are you completely immune to training fatigue? Fuck no, you do eight sets of hack squats and you're fucked up and you got to deload because it's just too much for anything to recover from. 
And on the other hand, your training can be going great in the gym, but you're fucking starving. And it's hard to walk around, especially with farm. Like one thing I've noticed, especially with compounds like Tren, you feel like fucking total shit the whole day. You show up to the gym, you start warming up and you're like, I'm disabled. I can't lift weights. The bar weighs as much as 400 pounds. And then with every warm-up set, something happens. And then you hit all-time PR, all-time PR, all-time PR. And you guys know that like trend feeling of when your muscles are contracting and you're like, if I push a little harder, both of my pecs are coming off the fucking bone. <laughs> what the hell is this shit? So a lot of times you can be super diet fatigued, but your training is still going well. Yeah. Not all the time, some of the time. So what you can do is look at diet fatigue a little bit independently of training fatigue. Sometimes your training will be in a state where you don't need to change it, but you do need more food and to reduce diet fatigue. Sometimes it's the other way around where your diet's 100% hunky-dory, but it's just time to pull back on the training. Oftentimes that will occur at the same time, but not always. I do think there's a synergy there where when you're deloading from training, you have to also deload from your diet because you, your attempt to drop total fatigue systemically from training and local training fatigue is dependent on having enough food to recover from. So one of the worst mistakes you ever make in contest prep, taking a deload from your training, but like, yes, training deload, but the diet's still fucking plugging along at 100%. What the fuck are you doing? Losing muscle? And also you'll finish the deload and someone's like, so you like less fatigue? Like, nope, just as fatigued as before. Like, hey, congratulations, you did nothing. Nothing happened on your deload except you lost muscle. So when you're dealing for training, you definitely should be deloading from diet, but there will be times when your training is good on contest prep, especially with pharmacology, when you can still benefit from a diet deload of a few days of going to maintenance. No, I think that's perfect. And that makes contextual sense as well. Um, Because just like, hey, if you're like going to the gym, your connective tissue is falling apart. It's not like you you can just have a refeed. You're like, yeah, did you heal all your pec tendons and they're put back together? Like, no, no, they're still not attached to the bone. That's right. My pec tendons, just like grains of rice went straight to the pec tendons and just filled them in. And uh, I guess to, to circle back, because we, we brought up, there's some of the studies that I've seen brought up about using refeeds and the idea behind them is to restore glycogen levels so you can have high training performance and that performance will lead to improved muscle retention. But the counter argument to that has been, well, then these studies, you, you know, in a, in a normal bodybuilder workout, maybe you will only deplete 40%, 30% of muscle glycogen. These aren't that depleting workouts and it's not going to impede performance. Just like you, you said, a lot of times you can, you still feel like pretty diet fatigued, but you can keep plugging away. You can hold, hold your loads, your reps, et cetera. So that might not be quite a limiting factor, but in a, in a, in those studies, we're not, in contest uh, prep individuals, right? So they're not someone that's in this low carbohydrate state where they can just have a, a low blood sugar episode walking outside for their, <laughs> their step right. count. And that's me. That's me. I'm outside and I'm like getting hazy, like I'm going to get home and try to eat <laughs> soon. Um, so, you know, it comes to the fact that maybe timing does have an, an impact on using these refeed strategies um, around training. Yeah. And so, definitely around training. So how, how would you program using these, these refeeds around certain training windows? Um, is there certain days other than others? Is, is it just off individual feedback or is it late days? Cause most people are doing lots of late cardio. Yeah. So like uh, you can have this be potentially more complex where on muscles and days in which you really need glycogen, you can eat a bit more right before. 
and potentiate more hypertrophy by eating more right after. So a lot of times for legs, you'll eat more food before and more food after. And for other parts of the body that don't have to do your cardio for you, because you don't do cardio with your fucking arms, um, you're less uh, interested in glycogen depletion. I will say, people say like, you know, one workout only depletes your glycogen 40%. That is in an, in an isocaloric environment in which you're not dieting down. And it's one thing to say it only depletes at 40%, but what if you barely replete it at all? You go 40%, let's say you go down to 60% one workout. A couple workouts later, only it's, up, it's up to only 80% because you're not eating a whole lot of food. Then it's down another 40%. That takes you down to 40%. Then you go up to 60, then down to 20. And like a 20% glycogen, you're just not firing all cylinders anymore. You're going to have a performance decrement. And then you get below 20%, you start feeling like death all over. And the muscles, you stop getting pumps. A lot of anabolism just stops altogether. So yeah, any one workout doesn't zap your glycogen completely. But if you're in a hypocaloric state, slowly over days and weeks, the intramuscular glycogen can go down to the point where it does provide problems for you, which is why you don't necessarily need to refeed after every workout. But after, you know, five to six workouts for the same muscle group, maybe a higher degree of carbohydrate is necessary and you begin that fractional uh, cutting out process afterwards. And, and on that, Mike, so this would bring up the argument that, like, okay, your training's going to shit. You have to restore glycogen levels with this refeed day that's taking away from the deficit. Why don't you just take more, all that food on your refeed day, <clears throat> spread it across your training so you can have a little bit better training every day versus this going to shit training, having a bump in training, and then going back down into into shit training. Um, why, why not do that approach? Or is it just individual based? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you can uh, absolutely do more of a spread out approach or more of a pulsatile approach. That, there's, there's absolutely merits for both. I will say though, that because any spread out approach is inherently hypocaloric, you're going to run into some forms of diet fatigue, especially psychological ones anyway, no matter how slowly you try to diet you're going to have to do refeeds anyway if you're in a serious contest prep because nobody can even grind a moderate deficit for four weeks and not feel some sort of uh, decline in performance, sleep, sleep's a big one, uh, hunger, so on and so forth that can't be remediated at least somewhat with a little bit of, uh, of a refeed. So it, it's almost like asking the same question of, okay, if you're doing deloads every four weeks, why not just train way easier every session so that you only have to deload every eight weeks? And the answer to that is this, those aren't the most high quality sessions. Um, so if someone's got a, a, you know, a deficit of 100 calories a day, could they go through a whole contest prep and get in shape without any deloads for diet? Yeah, maybe. But like, Jesus Christ, that's like a 32-week diet or something like that. So I think because fat loss can occur pretty easy in a gnarly deficit, and because we only need a few days in a refeed state in order to clear a lot of diet fatigue, just like with training, occasional deloads don't hurt. They're part of the process. I think with diet, occasional diet deloads are a pretty good idea. There is definitely some wiggle room as to how often they need to occur and how big that initial deficit needs to be. But I think there's plenty to be said for a good solid moderate deficit, going till you can't, deloading with the diet, and then going at it again. Um, if you try to much less of a deficit, then what ends up happening is diet fatigue still accumulates. Uh, it just, you have to do these refeeds less often, but probably not, not at all, unless you want to do like, you know, again, a hundred calorie deficit or something like that, which is so hard to hit in practice. Nobody would ever do it. I mean, can you imagine how with farm, 
the fuck are you supposed to detect someone who's actually having a hundred calorie deficit? You never do that in your life because body weight's completely gone. Even with body weight, you can't because you know when they lose like a fifth of a pound a week, how the fuck would you ever see that? So I think it, you know realistically, we have to present what I would call like a robust deficit. Like, okay, this number of calories for sure under maintenance and for sure burning body fat. And that number of calories inevitably requires uh, or can be optimized with a few days of going back to maintenance. Once a lot of diet fatigue is cleared, then you go back into that like legit deficit. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's easy. That's a great analogy to bring it back around to training. It's like, well, can I just train easier and give a little less stimulus and I never have to deload? It's like, I guess, but maybe you're leaving something on the table with that. Just like with dieting, like, well, maybe I just won't have as much deficit and I just won't have to have these sporadic days. It's like, yeah, you also might not get in shape. You know, at some point, you're going to have to be suffering to some degree. You're going to have to dig. And I usually have the thought process as well of like, if I'm starting someone on prep or whatever prep, I can always take food away and add it back in. I can't go back in time and take food away. So it's like, hey, oh man, they suck down in three days. I'm, I, I, you can add food back in, right? They go back down in two days. Oh shit. Well, you know what? I should probably readjust the plan, the base plan. Not too much though, but then we get back on our normal refeed schedule. Maybe that's every five to seven days or something. I find if you refeed someone so often, it's like, this doesn't make any sense. Like there it's too sporadic. Maybe we should even it out some, but then you have that nice range where they're still digging hard enough, but then you can kind of bring them back to life a little bit every so often. I think that rate of point is important too, because like, especially when the pharmacological side is, 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 is in play because, you know, we're trying to watch this rate, rate of weight loss. And once pharmacological intervention is introduced, right, that can really skew that, that rate of weight loss. So one of the things that we had discussed before as well is on that large deficit straight out the gate um, with like pharmacological inter intervention already in play, um, do you believe that the, the refeed process from earlier within the prep, the prep phase versus later should be a little bit less about like learning about the refeed process for like peaking. And then as we go on, it's more planned around. Cause you had mentioned creating it to where it's almost like a surplus because of the diet adaptation across as we go. And so we're more like likely to extend it across just from a needs basis of like we're that much leaner so it's possibly going to take more days to create that 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 effect probably and i think a lot of contest prep coaches will say that once you get very lean you you gotta not be as aggressive per week total with how much weight you're trying to lose or how much fat you're trying to lose because your body fights you that much harder so i think that you know you i think the diets can go like this. You start the diet with basically, uh, and this is obviously how, how I, I program. When you start the diet, you choose a maintenance value that is maintenance calculated for roughly the middle of your diet. So initially your maintenance days, you do mostly maintenance days and a few low days, like real serious deficit but your maintenance is still a deficit, maybe like a 300 cal or 400 cal deficit. That's how I'm coaching Charlie right now. So you begin your diet, everything's a fucking deficit, but like kind of who gives a shit because you have zero diet fatigue, weight's falling off, you're recomping super fast. Towards the middle of the diet, 
it turns into like, okay, there's distinct low days and distinct maintenance days, same as they were before, but now your maintenance has come down to meet it at real maintenance instead of being a, a fat loss. And then later, when you're closer to peaking, that same number of calories, the maintenance is now a slight surplus. So it allows you to experiment with glycogen repletion protocols. And also you might introduce it for more days now. So it, it essentially like what it looks like is very few low days at the beginning of your diet, but every day is a little bit low. Towards the middle of your diet, that's when you have a fuckload of low days. That's when you go to a paradigm of like, you know, 12 or like 11 days low and three days high, like bullshit, fucking awful. Uh, you know, that's like eight weeks out, six weeks out, 10 weeks out, that whole area. And then as you get close to the four week out mark, you pull back. Uh, if the athlete is on a, on a, a path for readiness when they're supposed to be, if for some reason they're not, I don't know, that whole middle of the diet bullshit has to continue a little longer. But generally, if you played it smart and were on time, you start to introduce maybe like four high days and three low days or three high days and four low days. And then that gives the athlete much more easily, easy ability to manage fatigue precisely when their diet and training fatigue is so fucking high that if you did much more hardcore shit, they would just snap into two pieces. Yeah, I think that's a, a great way to start managing someone out, out the gates of a prep. And and like you said, like as you get closer to the show, muscle mass loss is more likely to occur. And also the the tank of fat that you have is now smaller. So you just can't simply burn as much fat at a time. So to lower that deficit, you can start building in more of these maintenance days to slow yep. down. Now that's with the caveat that we do understand that there is adaptations occurring. So that same maintenance level from the beginning, that adaptation has occurred throughout prep. So you, you might have to adjust slightly for that. Um, totally. how, how much that is, I, I don't think a lot of it's coming from metabolic gate. Like we, we have say, I think a lot of it is from, from neat levels and people just becoming less active. And then some from the adaptation of like, you're getting more efficient doing cardio and you're at a lot of, a lot of body weight doing cardio. And so that's why we're seeing the, the, that change within that too. Um, at least with enhanced, we're not looking at, you know, drops and thyroid function and, and aspects like that. Um, Cause we have, sure. we have a lot of different tools uh, in hand sure. with, with, uh, sorry, Mike, were you going to add something? Yeah, real quick. I think um, the pedometer like watch, like I have on every waking second now, step tracking is a beautiful tool for contest prep because it almost entirely obviates the meat reduction. Like um, during contest prep, I get 14,000 steps a day on average and I just never change it. And honestly, like over this last prep, I got a third of the diet fatigue that I normally would if I let my meat fall off. As soon as you let your meat start to fall off, I, I get even hungrier, my weight loss stops moving, and my diet fatigue feels terrible. If I just maintain a high level of activity all the time, kind of the body fat just scoots off. I never have to eat very tiny amounts of food. And it's been super great. Also, if you have your athletes as a coach, if you have them step tracking, you don't have to ask the question of, hey, how is your knee? Do you feel like you're moving less? Give a shit what you feel. How many steps a day you have, motherfucker? And they're like, oh, this many. And you're like, okay, that's not, that's not what our target is. So I think step tracking, which I, John, I've noticed you using as well, is like an excellent tool to make sure your knee never does fall off. And, and that can be an excellent thing. And another thing about coaching enhanced folks, they sometimes just don't lose that much weight on prep anyway. So that whole idea of them, you know, like going down and weight a ton and then their metabolism, their knee is low just because they're not moving as big of a body. A lot of folks, especially that don't crank 
a shitload of volumizing gear on their off season, they'll come in 10 or 15 pounds under their off season weight uh, into the show. And that's not mm. a huge difference. Like, yeah. Like some athletes lose 60 pounds. That's a big deal. But then again, like if you're losing 60 pounds, either you're really, really fat. <laughs> right. But also I, I think a lot of guys just smash as much slim as they can slim and fucking orals in their off season and then like, uh, way 290, like right on. Well, you have 260 pounds of muscular physique and 30 pounds of death by blood water. pressure water. <laughs> so if you didn't do that shit, maybe you wouldn't have to make a ton of adjustments. But, you know, who knows? Uh, to, to, to sort of red team my own analysis here, maybe volumizing like crazy and smashing slim is what gives them that five pounds of extra muscle per off season that makes them mass monsters in the end. I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes I think where a lot of us are looking for these happy answers of like, it's possible to be a freak and do it intelligently. I think at some point the, the sheer amount of gear and risky strategies it takes to reach truly exotic heights just comes with a certain fucking fixed cost. And you could do a good job at managing that within its own constraints. But at some level, it's just like, that's just some shit that's going to have to happen. You know, Rolly Winkler wasn't born at 305 or whatever the fuck he weighs. Who knows? Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I agree. If you want to get to freak status, regardless if you have phenomenal genetics, if you want to take it there, and then what, 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 what's stopping you, right? Like if you're competing at that level and you don't have any like concerns about your next 10, 20 years, it's like, let's just drop it down and, and push it all in. Right. And uh, yeah, I think there's people out there that don't have that concern about health. Right. Yeah, and yeah. It's you're, you're going to sacrifice it, pushing it to there. Is that what gets that freaky level? Probably, probably so there's guys that I think are managed reason like within reason that are accepting certain risk that are going to get freaky either way. Um, but it's just all across the board, you know, um, for sure. And I, you know, to bring up on, on the steps, I, my past two years of competing is when I've used steps and my preps have been so much, the perception of being easier, I think as they actually are, there's better preps. Fatigue is drastically managed over any other thing that I've done from having to do like high amounts of like direct, more moderate intensity cardio. Like I was Stairmaster. That was me. Like, Fuck that. Beat, beat them, beat them to death. And uh, to where you're just like lay down afterwards, like I'm fucking dead for the day. Like eat a meal and maybe I come back to life a little bit and then holy shit, the next morning I gotta do this again. And it's like, it's like, you know, coming to the Kumite to like fucking fight for your death, you know? Um, so, and now it's like, oh yeah, I can just walk outside for, damn, I could do that for hours and just stay active. It all adds up. And uh, you can have all your athletes tracking as far as their, their activity goes and account for that, like you said. I think that is one of the greatest tools that I've implemented to have most, so much more enjoyable preps. Oh yeah. Amazing. And the consistency, like, you know, we all, people will say like, I do 40 minutes of cardio on an empty stomach. Like, well, yeah, how fast are you going on a treadmill? How much do you weigh? That all plays in. Uh, and 40 minutes can be a different thing. And also if you don't track your steps, if you started doing 40 minutes on the cardio machine and then you switch to an hour, how do you know you're not compensating by being a lazier piece of shit the rest of the time? And we know from a ton of research, actually massive studies on, on tons of human beings, people are really, really, really good at completely unconsciously auto-regulated energy intake. It's just really tough to get someone to burn like 5,000 calories a day, like very, very, very hard to do. And if you race formal cardio, they get lazier and other things like you, I don't know you guys like like in college and stuff like that when you watch the athletes walk around campus like especially the high volume output athletes this is the slowest walkers in yeah. the history of fucking time and you're like huh 
mm-hmm. like and they're all like always in hoodies and stuff and like this and taking notes like this and like what are they doing to you in that sport well they have such a crazy output in the sport the rest of their shit shuts down even in the presence of plenty of calories so i think that uh when you have your uh your shit figured out as far as okay i'm doing two hours of cardio a day that may look like a lot but then you compensate so much with other shit for it that it's not really as much as you think it is by doing a certain step count you can hold yourself to almost an exact measurement of, okay, this is how many calories I'm burning. You keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. Another really great thing as what you basically alluded to, John, is the, the stimulus to fatigue ratio uh, of cardio can be considered. And the stimulus there is calories burned ratio to how much fatigue it is. And there's an absolutely a clear exponential relationship of higher the intensity of the cardio, the, the worse, sorry, the worse the stimulus to fatigue ratio is, the most ideal cardio possible uh, to be completely frank is taking DMP <laughs> because you just sit around and you burn fat, but also you might die. Uh, so, and, and you know, that you get stopped at airports for being an explosive device, but like uh, it, it, next to that, the best form of, of cardio stimulus to fatigue ratio wise is walking cardio, just doing daily stuff, going to the store, walking your dog, walking around the block and listening to podcasts or talking to friends, pacing around when you're talking to someone and you look at your calorie watch or whatever your step watch, and oh my fuck, I'm at 16,000 steps. But I feel fine because I never really tried all that hard. And here's a better thing. You get all your shit done. Like you, like for, if you're keeping track of steps normally, so check this out. This is a kind of a cool psychological insight I found. If you keep track, if you don't keep track of steps and you have two hours of cardio during your conscious prep and your wife or girlfriend asks you, hey, do you want to go like Costco or Sam's Club with me? What are you going to say? You're going to be like, fuck no, <laughs> bitch, are you crazy? I got an hour cardio later. I, don't fuck, I would choke the fuck out of you if I wasn't completely tired. Um, but then, it was my wife around. I hear that. <laughs> I'll get choked to death. But then if you have a step calorie or a step tracker and she's like, hey, do you want to go to the store and help me shop? You're like, yeah, I could fucking destroy like 3,000 steps going to fucking Costco. That parking lot is bigger than my entire life history. So like, you, you know, all of a sudden you actually want to do the things that make your life run and do chores and you burn fat doing it. It's fucking incredible. I think you get a, a good point too about the ac- accuracy aspect of implementing these things, especially to clients. Um, it, Cause that's even an issue too. Like of, like you said, during cardio, like what is a change of 10 minutes of cardio? Like I, you know, I don't know how they're doing their cardio or they like draped all over the Stairmaster now. Um, yes. It, it, yes. And, and versus like if I have a refeed where I have a measured amount of food, that's a, a much more accurate way to give them a, a, a change in that, ca- in that calorie deficit to surplus um, or even steps because walking is pretty much walking for the most part, um, depending on, you know, on average, if we had like 20,000 steps, like taking 4,000 off, like on average, this is probably pretty close intensity wise versus hey, I'm going to try to have you do 15 minutes less of cardio today on the Stairmaster. It's like, what does that equate to calorize? Um, I, don't, we, I mean, it's hard to say. And, and we don't have a good picture of like how they're actually doing it, the modality they're doing or doing the same. Um, so I think from an accuracy standpoint, it, it makes a lot of sense, like just moderating steps and also energy intake. You do have to weigh in the efficiency standpoint for some people because most of us don't just work in, in the land of YouTube all day <laughs> and on IG. We do, <laughs> no. but um, <laughs> so, so some people have to work and then they have to have some direct cardio in place. And so from a training aspect, Mike, if they, if that was a person that needed some moderate intensity cardio because of just time efficiency, what, how would you implement that to regulate that fatigue? 
stimulus to fatigue. I would do the John. Yeah, yeah. I would do the John Jewett method, which I've seen you do for yourself. Is um, you give them, you still have them buy a step tracker watch, and you have them hit a, an average. Okay, I don't want you to fall below four thousand any day. And if you do, just take if four thousand is not that fucking many. You can make a thousand up in ten minutes of walking. So you have them do that as a baseline, but it's pretty low. And then you pepper in the more high intensity cardio sessions as needed. So I think that then a combination approach. I, Almost never would I go with someone to be like, don't worry about steps, whatever, fuck them. Just, uh, just go to formal cardio because I don't know how lazy they're being at the office to compensate for that. And a lot of times when people say, oh, I have a day job, like if your day job is sitting in front of a computer all day, I do understand that it can result in a few steps. But a lot of people's day jobs are like pretty fucking active. If we slap a step tracker on you, it turns out your day job is already fucking awesome cardio. And that gets you on your way. Personal trainers, tons of bodybuilders, personal trainers, motherfucker, you walk all day around the gym. Mm -hmm. Don't tell me you, you know, that is cardio. And the good news for them is if you formalize it, you can say, hey, look, you don't have to do formal cardio anymore because you're at 15,000 steps a day. That's all we ever want. But what I want you to do is if you have a 13,000 step day, I just want you to get on the treadmill and walk at a brisk pace on an incline if you like and just hit the other, probably not on an incline actually to, to lower fatigue, just a flat walk, uh, make up the calorie or sorry, make up the steps on the treadmill. I'll do that every now and again. Like I'll finish training early or I get to the gym early and Jared's not there yet. Or I'm, I'm like at the gym for some other purpose. And then I'm like, well, I have like 10 minutes to kill. Might as well get on the treadmill and just kick off some of these steps that I have for the day. So I think that's a pretty decent way to manage it. Yeah. Yeah. I do that a lot. <laughs> that's my main approach is the steps. And then I'll have some higher lower to moderate intensity treadmill walking to make, make up for that intensity. So I, I guess the treadmill walking would be your first go-to for like a modality to implement over some of the other modalities, like elliptical spin bike, Stairmaster. Elliptical is great. So I love the elliptical because it's truly whole body and it's not impact. It's amazing. And I think the elliptical, you can actually go pretty high in heart rate and face a lot of fatigue or muscle because it's so packed and it spreads the work effort over your entire body. Like the elliptical doesn't fry your legs like you think it would for how many calories you're, because it's not a legs, it's arm too. You have to pick one tool to use when an athlete consulting needs more burn they can't walk through. Uh, I would absolutely choose the elliptical. Okay. The elliptical is amazing. And also like elliptical doesn't mean you go fast in it. You can go pretty slow on the elliptical and it's like still burns a fuckload of calories per unit time. You don't go that fast because it's truly a whole body effort and it's not impact. The recumbent bike or something like that, cycling, man, it's fine impact wise, but that just fucks up your quads so goddamn The localized really fatigue is crazy on it. Oh, it's awful. It's awful. I know people like quote I the studies it. like, oh, but it mimics the patterns of resistance training because it has a lot of hip flexion. I'm like, have you fucking done it? Like, get on it. Your yeah. quads are burning, pumped, and like, you're not going to train legs for shit that day. I'll tell you that. For sure. And imagine doing it five days a week. Your overall leg recovery and training goes straight to hell. Forget about glycogen. There's no more of that in your legs. And when you're supposed to be growing your legs in between workouts, you're on the recumbent bike fucking shitting off muscle. So terrible idea. Um, the Stairmaster is unbelievable for how many calories it burns per unit time, yeah. but it does it in an unbelievably high fatigue state. It's the same thing as the recumbent bike, uh, essentially, except it also has impact, which makes it worse. Climbing stairs fucks up your legs and it's brutal. I just think a lot of folks, uh, you know, a lot of people in bodybuilding, this is something that we sort of have to admit, but bodybuilders do it. Look, you guys, you guys are bodybuilders. You've been around the sport for a long time. Let's just let's cut, cut to the chase. And I, I'm, I'm willing to say this 
because I don't have to be the most liked person of all time. A shitload of bodybuilders, fucking dumbest people you ever meet in your life. I, mean, I don't understand how they tie their shoes, how to work, figure out how to work Google Maps. Like, and then people are like, I wonder what, what's his name thinks about cardio? Like, thinks? You presuppose that he thinks about anything. He doesn't think about a fucking thing. I think a, a lot of the reason the bodybuilders like shit like the Stairmaster is they're like, man, I fucking sweat like crazy on that thing, bro. And you're like, uh-huh. And they're like, fucking gets me lean. And you're like, uh-huh. What do you think about fatigue? They're like, what the fuck's fatigue? <laughs> <You're> like, uh, <laughs> why am I talking to you? So I think a lot of the advances on what's a good idea have to come from, you know, the smarter folks uh, that are more reasoned. You know, it's like what Mila Sarchev did for uh, drug protocols in the 90s. Like he was the only motherfucker out of, you know, he was one of a thousand people who were like, hmm, this makes more sense to do this way. And all of a sudden, everyone he trained gained 20 pounds of muscle. You know, where the fuck were like the, the guys in the early 90s? Why didn't they come up with it? Because they're not thinking fucking people. So I honestly think the Stairmaster's popularity comes down to like, it's fucking hard, bro. And it makes me sweat. Fucking iron, you know, put in your headphones and fucking Rocky tunes on loop, you know, Eye of the Tiger. And all of a sudden you're on the Olympia stage because you're a freak anyway. Like, I honestly think a lot of the shit works like that. And incrementally, we can do better over time from folks like you and other people that are actually thinking instead of just, you know, doing hardcore shit. Well, I appreciate that, Mike. And, you know, you have to just walk through the, the logic with some of these people. It's like, well, you know, you sweat a lot when you go in the sauna. Why don't you just, instead of the Stairmaster, why don't you just go sit in the sauna and you could sweat a lot and hell yeah, yeah bro. It's like, well, no. John, you don't want to say that because it'd be like, good point. <laughs> they go good to the point. sauna and you're like, no, 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 no. I was being sarcastic. Come back. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, what I'm trying to do here too is like bridge that 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 barrier is what it really is between these these pro level guys that are enhanced that they immediately shut down to the science because it's uncomfortable and it makes them think, which is not comforting and challenges a lot of their beliefs that they've kind of taken up as their own personal identities of being this like macho grind through it all like anything that's supposed to like being maybe easier like oh hell no you know um so i think trying to to come between these worlds and and you know interject and, and help these guys out if they are helpable um it, it's, if it's they what, want I, to be helped, right? it, yeah and that's if they want to be helped right and uh it's what what, I, what i'm trying to do but i think uh we went we went all over on this free feed topic sorry go for ahead. sure sorry without without uh, presupposing too much i think another incredible value that I, I know for a fact you're currently doing, and I don't know if this is what you want to be doing, but I can tell you because I, I'm in the industry, I talk to a lot of people, you're kind of one of the leading lights of not changing what the current pros are doing as much as the guys that are starting to be NPC competitors now, the guys that are in the NPC going to be winning pro cards in the next two to three years, they're looking to you because they, they watched a couple of videos of pros talking about their chicken and rice and they're like, dude, this guy's fucking retarded and they're not the fucking stupid people. And then they look at your stuff and they're like, oh my God, this guy's a pro top 10 at the Olympia and he's, he make, he's making sense and science. And then these are the guys that I think you're going to have that both of you guys are going to have the best impact on. Those are the guys like Jared is super intent on targeting, like whatever current pros, you know, people retire. And, and sometimes they're, they do come to the, the light. Sometimes they're really recalcitrant. They don't give a flying fuck. You know, I got eight Olympias. Fuck if I care about what you have to say. Totally. Yeah. Peace. And everyone gets old, but this new crop of people, I think in the next five to 10 years, a ton of the people on the Olympia stage, are just going to be fucking sharper and smarter and more accepting of science and more nuanced. And a lot of times I honestly think when they're going to be like, who, who was your influence? They're going to be like Jared Feather, John Meadows, John Jewett. These are the guys that fucking, that really pushed it along and really showed me that like 
man, like I already know I'm working hard. How do I work smart and just as hard? If I'm not willing to accept the trade-off of working smarter means easier and then I'm fucking lame and a pussy, like, no, 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 I'm ready to work hard. But when I work hard, I want to work as smart as possible. Yeah. No, oh, thank you. That, I mean, that's, that's very flattering. And I think that that needs to be out there. And that's what I always stuck out when I was coming up and there just, it just wasn't available. Like I had bodybuilding magazines around, I had a few guys that were out on, on like coming out on YouTube that would put out a little bit, but gosh, you just wouldn't have a source for information. And I had to learn why to do everything. So I knew I sure I was being efficient with my time for one thing. And I wasn't just doing something that was a fucking waste. And I realized like, Hey, what can I do with my genetics? Well, doesn't really matter because I can't change them yet. Um, but well, let me make sure I make the most of every single variable possible and learn everything that I can about it. Not just take someone's word for it and just do it. Cause what, you know, what, what if they're not right? And I just found that there are a lot of people that are not right in what they're doing or oh, sure. maybe there, there's some things that are right. And that leads to the outcome that looks right. But that process has a lot of flaws in it that could have been more efficient, could have kept people safer, could have kept people having more longevity in the sport. Or, hey, maybe they'll be able to live to 70 or 80 years old and not to like 35. Um, so, 100%. yeah, so it's, it's more than just an outcome. It's the process and then also what comes after you're done competing, too. So there's a lot, a lot to that. So thanks, Mike. I, you know, I truly you appreciate that. Um, we we're going a little over on time here. I, I wanted to offer any um, last things that you would want to add on refeeds or areas that you see, maybe it's misapplied that you want to direct some real light to and, and give some guidance for people. Start early. Don't start too fat. If you're really fat, do another diet for eight weeks before and then do a four week diet break and then do your contest prep. Once you get into prep, um, Push nice and easy and the weight will come off easy. When it starts to be a struggle, push hard until you can't push anymore. Back up, refeed until you feel good again. Repeat that cycle. Get really, really lean. When you're very, very lean, four to six weeks out, you can start taking the uh, foot off the pedal a little bit and producing a little bit more food, uh, higher days, fewer lower days, coast on into the show, flex the glutes for the judges, do whatever it takes between pre-judging a night show in the hotel to make sure you get the placing you deserve. You guys know what I'm talking about. And then, uh, and then that's it. You're, you're an IFE pro and everyone finally loves you for who you really are. Then you can become an online coach like all of us and make millions. <laughs> millions. Zillions. <laughs> Once you have a pro card, it doesn't matter anymore. Evidently. doesn't matter. You can say anything you want. <laughs> No, no. Thank, thank you, Mike, for coming on. I appreciate it. I think the, the refeeds they've alluded to, there are one tool in the toolbox and there's no magic behind them, but there, there's definitely an application for them. And we can look to the literature to try to gain understanding of how they are impacting our physiques, but we don't look to the literature to find the way to do refeeds because we're never going to find that. It's not, that's not what research is for either. It's to help us have understanding of individual variables and then give us better application into our, our coaching practice. But I, I still would heavily weigh like our, what we gather anecdotally, empirically, um, oh, yeah. over, over like a lot of this, this research studies. So don't chase your latest headline of refeeds are bad or refeeds are good. And, and it's always, usually we're operating kind of in this in-between area. Uh, Luke, did you have any closing thoughts or anything you wanna, wanna add? 
just to reiterate like where we're at in this calls within the literature and how you know we may see that you said that new headline that new protocol whatever it's it's just contextual information to the pool and until we get further beyond the infancy don't don't be too um, steadfast in your conclusions that's brilliant that needs to be said mike where can people find you are you still building the robotic octopus to take over vegas or that's what you, know, you mentioned. <laughs> that's kind of a secret project, John, and it's really unfortunate that you had to bring it up because now our agents are going to have to make you disappear. So I just hope I'm not in that there box no with, with the heavy metal music and maybe a cigarette every now and then. <laughs> you a cigarette. That's what it comes out. I just want one fucking cigarette and I'm totally good to go. Uh, well, hey, Marcus Rawl smoked cigarettes during prep, so you know who are we to say it's a bad thing? Uh, YouTube. <laughs> YouTube, uh, Renaissance Periodization YouTube is where we're putting out tons of content all the time. That's probably to find me. If you want pointless posts of my dog shit training, RP Dr. Mike on Instagram, RP Strength on Instagram for better content. And uh, yeah, that's it. All right. Well, that's it for us at the J3U podcast. Thank you for tuning in and we will talk to you next time.